Welcome to Counterpunch Radio. My name is Eric Dreitzer. I want to thank you so much for tuning in to episode 73. Great program this week. Uh, we we talk a lot about really nasty things on this show, all the nasty things happening in the world, whether it's uh, issues of war and peace, whether it's economic exploitation, whether it's uh, uh, the, the lurch to the extreme right and the rising uh, fascist tide or what have you. We talk about all of these dark and ominous issues, and today I'm very happy to be able to talk about one issue that at least partially is really, really exciting, really good news. But we can temper that by knowing that the problem is, of course, much bigger, as it always is. But before I can get into all of that really exciting information and my excellent guest, I do want to make my pitch for Counterpunch, as I always do. I can hear people's eyes rolling as they're going to hear yet another Counterpunch uh, advertisement here. But I do think it is important that in this time, right now, at the beginning of 2017, at the with the onset uh, of of uh, full blown Donald Trump administration, uh, with all of the things happening in the world, I think counterpunch is really needed now more than ever. Um, especially considering this witch hunt, this McCarthyism against the alternative media, specifically left alternative media. Uh, I think that this is all critically important to support to be part of this struggle. One way that you can do that: a subscription to Counterpunch's print magazine. Imagine that. A magazine printed on paper, people. Imagine. Uh, Counterpunch still does it, and it's a good way to support Counterpunch. Get that subscription. You'll be a part of uh, keeping Counterpunch going. Another way, of course, is by making a donation through the PayPal button on, on the website and or picking up the phone or sending in, uh, in the mail or carrier pigeons or whatever method works for you. And um, finally, a kind of exciting announcement. Uh, Counterpunch Radio is now available on Google Play Music or the Google Play Store or whatever they call it. And uh, imagine, it only took me like 75 episodes to figure out that it should probably also be there where millions of people will find it. So that's great. And uh, any other positive uh, reviews, either on iTunes or Google Play, uh, are greatly appreciated. Spread the word on this show. Let's build an audience as much as we possibly can. Anyway, I I want to turn to my guest this week. I feel like I feel like this shamelessly self-promoting here. Uh, Carl Grossman is on the show. Carl Grossman is an investigative reporter. He is a professor at the State University of New York at Old Westbury in Long Island. He is a longtime investigative journalist, one of the, I think, one of the most important voices on the issue of nuclear power, nuclear plants, and uh, anti-nuclear activism. You can find uh, all of his work and link Links to his uh, books and articles on his website, carlgrossman.com. That's K-A-R-L-G-R-O-S-S-M-A-N.com. You know, Carl, like Karl Marx. You guys know what I'm talking about here. <laughs> Carl Grossman, welcome to the show. A pleasure to be with you. So you had a very, very important article published in Counterpunch. It is entitled, and if I if I had sound effects and a, and, a, and a sound mixing board, I would do a drum roll and a trumpet sound. It was entitled, The End of Indian Point and the Myths of Nuclear Power in America. Very, very, very important news coming out in, in recent days. Tell us about it, Carl. What have we heard about Indian Point? Well, the, the news, as I, as I began the piece, is very, very good. Uh, uh, these are two uh, uh, disasters waiting to happen, and they're just 26 miles 
north of New York City, these two long, trouble-plagued nuclear power plants, and an agreement was worked out involving the state of New York, Governor Andrew Cuomo, and the owner of uh, these two Indian Point plants, Entergy, which is based actually in New Orleans, of all places, uh, but it's the, the owner these days, to close these two plants down. Uh, one would be shut down uh, by the end of April 2020, and the second by April 2021. So it's a few years away. I mean, it, in my view, it should have been done yesterday. In fact, it should have been done years ago. Uh, but here uh, you had Entergy pushing actually to get a, a license extension to have these two nuclear power plants, which have already run for 40 years each. I mean, actually, they've been running in recent times without a license because all they originally got was a, a license to run 40 years. And Entergy was pushing to have these nuclear plants go another 20 years, go 60 years. But this this agreement was worked out again, involving the state, also involving a lot of grassroots environmental and safe energy organizations, which have been for years and years have been uh, uh, working to to get these uh, these nuclear plants shut down. Uh, and uh, it, it, I think it's wonderful. It's absolutely wonderful uh, that the, the, these dangerous uh, nuclear power plants, will be in a few years, we're going to have to wait a few years, no more. Yes, indeed. But, uh, you know, at the risk of uh, of playing the proverbial wet blanket here, uh, we do have to be, I think, a little bit cautious. Number one, there is kind of, I don't even want to call it a loophole, it's an obvious glaring and gaping hole in this agreement, and that is that there is the potential for a mutually agreed upon series of delays. So there is the possibility that 2021 comes and goes, 2022, 23, 24, eventually pushing it all the way out to like 2022. And from my perspective, at least, that's like playing Russian roulette. I mean, you're really pushing your luck every day that it's not shut down. Yeah, well, what, what, what the agreement says, and it's online, you can go to actually Cuomo's, Governor Cuomo's website, uh, and you can read it. What they allow, I mean, it's being reported that there's an emergency provision that the plants can operate another four years past those uh, those deadlines, 2020 and 2021. But in fact, if you look carefully, what it says is that each nuclear plant could, uh, if there's an emergency, uh, be allowed to operate two additional years by, and I'm quoting here, reason of war, uh, a sudden increase in electrical demand, uh, a, a number of other provisions, and this has to be agreed to uh, by the state. It isn't something that would be automatic. It could be contested. So that's the uh, very troublesome, very concerning, particularly with the Trump administration uh, coming in, and it's going to be, I am sure, quite uh, pro-nuclear. Uh, that is concerning, but... Uh, the thing about uh, the closure of Indian Point, it involves a number of factors. Among the factors, one, 
the state of New York, and this involves both Cuomo uh, and the Attorney General Schneiderman, uh, the group Riverkeeper, uh, Clearwater, uh, other uh, clean uh, energy uh, uh, environmental organizations, they've been challenging uh, the state permit that the Indian Point plants have to have this this once-through cooling. In other words, uh, the two nuclear plants take enormous amounts of, of water. Big nuclear plant requires a million gallons a minute of water as coolant. And they've been taking this water from the uh, the Hudson River and uh, then sending it back the Hudson River, a little radiated, uh, killing huge amounts, abundant numbers of 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 of, of, of fish, of destroying marine life, an incredible level. So uh, the Attorney General, Riverkeeper, and the others have been challenging the state permit to allow Indian Point to uh, to continue to do that and insisting that uh, Indian Point have uh, these cooling towers, like if you visualize the Three Mile Island nuclear plant on the Susquehanna River, uh, you think about those towers, those ominous towers, uh, and this would be very expensive, very, very expensive uh, for uh, uh, energy. So it's been fighting this tooth and nail. But this kind of state um, oh, authority, uh, when you get to nuclear power, a lot of power has been grabbed by the federal government. This begins years ago when the whole nuclear program begins in the well, United States. Carl, that's actually uh, what I was about to what I was about to ask you. So let me just frame up the question, and then you can go off, uh, you know, in whatever direction you'd like. Uh, Indian Point seems to be one of the primary examples of this. Um, I guess what we could call, uh, you know, turf battle or, you know, jurisdiction war between uh, the individual states, in this case, the state of New York and the NRC, the Nuclear Regulatory Commission, which many people argue is very much in the pocket of big nuclear companies anyway. And so uh, is Indian Point uh, sort of ground zero for this jurisdiction battle? And how do you see that playing out? Let me get to that just in one second, if yeah, I could, yeah. because I just wanted to stress the, a second major element beyond this big state fight over the state speedies permit, they call it, and the insistence that you have cooling towers, that, that being too expensive, has to do with the economics of nuclear power today. I mean, at this point, from from a, a dollar basis, uh, nuclear power facing uh, very strong competition, uh, including from safe, clean, renewable energy sources, but led by solar and wind. Uh, from an economic point of view, nuclear power makes no sense, even to energy, even to energy. That's why uh, in various areas of the country, and I think this is going to increase under Trump, what the, uh, the nuclear uh, establishment has been trying to do is to get bailouts. One has occurred already mm -hmm. in Illinois, uh, and in fact, there's been one here in New York State uh, to bail out four upstate nuclear power plants, claiming that nuclear power represents, and I could talk about this at length, because it's such baloney, it's such malarkey, a carbon-free 
form of energy. But to get back to what you're noting very importantly, uh, the fight between the uh, the federal government and, and localities, uh, states and localities over nuclear, this begins uh, – it begins with – with the beginnings of nuclear technology. I mean, where nuclear technology comes from is the Manhattan Project, the effort during World War II to build atomic bombs. And these huge secret laboratories were set up all over the the country, uh, Los Alamos in particular, in New Mexico, and Oak Ridge in Tennessee, and what's now called Argonne in Illinois and so forth. And all kind of money was spent and... Uh, uh, huge numbers of people employed at these secret labs and uh, big corporations. Our, our, our government loves to give big corporations contracts to do work. Uh, and GE and Westinghouse became big contractors in terms of, of, of nuclear technology. Uh, with the end of the war, the Manhattan Project becomes the Atomic Energy Commission the AEC. And what occurs, I mean, this involves, and it's so critical, this, I view it as so critical, this, this history, why we got into this, this terrible mess. It involves, uh, well, it involves greed, a lot of greed, uh, and it involves vested interest. Greed being when you have a, a GE, when you have a Westinghouse with big contracts involving nuclear technology, uh, they would like to keep those contracts going. When you have these folks at these these laboratories involved in the construction initially of the atomic bomb and then the hydrogen bomb, they would like to uh, you know keep their jobs and their laboratory operations uh, going full tilt. Problem is, the problem is that there's a limit with what you can do in terms of producing nuclear weapons, and you can produce thousands of them, and we did 30,000, but you can't sell a hydrogen bomb to uh, even France or, or England. I mean, they, they, they don't, they don't um, give themselves to commercial distribution. So what occurs in these 46, 47, 48 in these years is that this nuclear establishment that was created during the war looked for things to perpetuate itself. Uh, to uh, extend this vested interest that was created during the Manhattan Project. And it looked for other things that could be done with nuclear technology, nuclear-powered airplanes, for example. The development began on, on, on nuclear-powered airplanes, would you believe, until there was a concern about how you're going to keep uh, the radiation from the pilots if you're going to need lead, and lead's going to cause the airplane to be so heavy and, and so forth. nuclear-powered rockets and various space systems. And actually, I've written a lot about about that, the use of nuclear in space, because that, in fact, was pursued. There, there have been accidents. Uh, food irradiation, taking strawberries or potatoes and zapping them with radiation. So if you'd want to eat a strawberry 20 years later and it, it would still be red, uh, you could do it if you wanted to do that. Uh, and then also this whole notion of using the heat of fission to boil water, turn a turbine, and generate electricity. I mean, that, that's what nuclear power plants really are all about. The, uh, 
the most dangerous way ever conceived of boiling water. Also, as a byproduct of fission, what you produce is plutonium, and thus also originally the notion was for dual-purpose reactors. You'd have these reactors that would produce electricity and also produce plutonium, which is uh, the fuel for, uh, for nuclear weapons. Then you got the political uh, aspect of this. Here you have this huge vested interest, this this uh, uh, this uh, this uh, this nuclear establishment uh, looking to well manipulate government so it could get away with what it wanted to get away with, and how it structured itself in that regard was to preempt. Again, I mentioned the word before preempt states and localities when it comes to many of the issues involving uh, radiation releases and and have the feds, the federal government, uh, be the king. uh, And the, uh, well, with the Atomic Energy Commission, you had a a thorough conflict of interest. It would both um, promote the development of nuclear technology and at the same time regulate it. Uh, ultimately, finally, in 1974, the Atomic Energy Commission was uh, was abolished because even Congress, which has long been in the pocket of uh, of the nuclear establishment, the nuclear industry, and those involving involved in nuclear technology and government, even the U.S. Congress had to realize that uh, that, that this thorough conflict of interest you had the foxes guarding. The hen house. Uh, Meanwhile, through the years, various states and localities have looked for ways to do what they can to uh, counter as much as they could uh, this this huge federal power. And it's been done in various ways in various places. I live on Long Island in New York. And in the 1960s, there was a plan to build not one, not two, but seven to 11 nuclear power plants on Long Island in New York to make this island, this 120-mile Long Island, a, in the parlance of the nuclear promoters at the time, a nuclear park. Uh, and uh, the, uh, the, the nuclear establishment began, in fact, they built the first of the 7 to 11. It was the Shoreham nuclear power plant. It was completed. Always in all licensing documents, it's called the Shoreham Nuclear Power Station 1. There was to be two more there, four at a place called Jamesport, also along Long Island Sound and so forth. In any case, how this scheme, with this nightmare for Long Island and the greater New York area, was stopped, some folks figured out that what was not preempted was police power. Like if the state of New York wants to widen a road and some the folks along what would be the widened right-of-way say, well, I'm not going to sell you my land, the state could condemn it. Using that as a principle, what happened in 1985, uh, public officials from Long Island, uh, the activists, uh, Uh, clean energy and environmental activists in Long Island joined together. They passed the Long Island Power Act, which um, basically says 
that um, if the this was the utility at the time pushing for the construction of and having built one of the nuclear plants and push it for the construction of the others, if the Long Island Lighting Company, what is his name, is going to persist in this scheme, we, the state of New York, based on our police power, would eliminate Lilco as essentially as a corporate entity. We will seize their assets and or their property. And that worked. Something called the Long Island Power Authority was then created by the state of New York. Loco realized that uh, they could keep pushing and they could keep pushing with their federal friends. And they had many federal friends. Uh, but the state had this, 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 this police power that it figured out how to use. So there's been there's been um, this tension, this uh, collision uh, between local localities and and the federal government in various places, and in a number of of, of instances. Oh, Vermont Yankee is another example of the state of Vermont challenging uh, the federal nuclear juggernaut, and ultimately because of really grassroots action again and uh, the state of Vermont's uh, efforts, uh, Vermont Yankee was closed. So, yeah, there, there's this collision, there's this tension, and I fear that with uh, what's going to occur with the Trump administration, uh, we, might see, uh, we might see a big effort to um, – this is, this, is this is the good news, this is the bad news – uh, to uh, change the balance. It's not been much of a balance, but for whatever balance there has been, to change it to uh, have the federal government uh, force the nuclear, force the public to swallow the nuclear bill uh, in a uh, oh, in a more forceful way than even it has so far. Well, I think that there's no doubt that that's going to be the push from the Trump administration. Um, in fact, I think that they're not really hiding the fact that that's exactly where this is going. But um, one of the things that I just want to I, I want to raise here is that the resistance against these nuclear plants, to a large extent, has been activists, right? People who are committed activists, who perhaps oftentimes are not even necessarily only environmentalists, people who are active on a number of issues. But I think that the real the real dynamic part of this movement has always been those who are directly impacted by these plants, those whose communities have been tainted by these plants, including, you know, um, all of the wide range of, of adverse health effects, the wide range of environmental devastation and various kinds of environmental devastation that these nuclear plants, um, you know, perpetrate. So I want to talk a little bit about that uh, to what extent do we know with documented, you know, verifiable hard science on the negative health impacts, uh, particularly one thing that comes to my mind uh, since I, like you, live in New York. I actually live about 15 miles as the crow flies from Indian Point, although thankfully on the other side of the river. But, um, you know, in doing the research on Indian Point, you find 
all kinds of things about, you know, elevated thyroid cancer rates and, and elevated radiation levels in the, in the topsoil and in the groundwater and all of these different things that come up. And of course, oftentimes they get thrown into this bucket of conspiracy theory or, you know, that these are debunked claims or whatever. But the reality is that this has been going on for decades. We've known about it for decades. And the question is, is this something that we can actually repair, even if we get rid of the nuclear plants? A bottom line, I think, on, on, on the issues here about nuclear technology and its impact on life uh, comes from uh, a fellow who was very much involved in nuclear technology originally, uh, uh, Admiral Hyman Rickover. I mean, he's considered the father of the so-called nuclear navy. And in fact, he was in charge of the construction of the first commercial nuclear power plant in the U.S. Uh, shipping port in Pennsylvania, opened in 1957. And for some reason, finally, uh, Rickover uh, saw the light. And uh, when he retired from the Navy in, in 1982, he addressed a congressional committee and you could um, you could Google this, or it's actually in my book, Cover Up, What You're Not Supposed to Know About Nuclear Power. But again, it's online, his whole very extensive present presentation. And, and what he told the Committee of Congress was that until a, a few billion years ago, there wasn't a possibility of having life on Earth because there was so much uh, so much radiation. This is this is radiation that existed in the uh, the early formation of a, of the planet. And, and then, and I'm quoting him directly, then the amount of radiation on this planet and probably in the entire system reduced and made it possible for some form of life to begin. Now, Rickover goes on, by utilizing nuclear power, this is, this is a direct quote, we are creating something which nature tried to destroy to make life possible. In other words, we, we are recreating these very poisons, the, the cesium-137 and the strontium-90, you know, all these horrible poisons that precluded life from existing. We're, we're now creating these poisons. And uh, here he goes on, every time you produce radioactivity, a horrible force is unleashed, in some cases for billions of years, uh, and, and this is Rickover, this isn't Greenpeace. There, I think the human race, says Rickover, is going to wreck itself. And he goes on to the Congressional Committee, we must outlaw nuclear reactors. So that's, these are the stakes. I mean, we're, we're talking here life and death on, a, on, a, on a, an enormous scale. On, 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 uh, and... and um, in terms of the operation of a nuclear power plant and these poisons, uh, you don't need a disaster. You don't need a catastrophe. And those have been critical in enabling lots of people to understand how how, how lethal, how, how dangerous, uh, dangerous isn't a strong enough word, uh, nuclear power is. I'm talking about Three Mile Island and... The Chernobyl nuclear plant accident um, uh, in, in the, what's now the Ukraine or 
Fukushima, which is ongoing after five years, still radioactivity being spewed into the Pacific. But you, you don't even even need a catastrophic accident to cause nuclear disaster. And the the actual operation of any nuclear power plant, uh, radioactivity is routinely emitted. They they can't hold in the gases. They uh, and some of it goes out the, with the uh, with that coolant water. These poisons are discharged, and people are affected. And in terms of how affected they are, I, I suggest that listeners just uh, oh. Uh, check out radiation.org, website radiation.org, which is the website of Radiation and Public Health Project. Uh, and, in fact, I'm, I'm on its board. Uh, so I'm quite familiar with its important work. It goes way back. And they have looked into the cancer clusters around uh, every nuclear plant. It's, it's uh, in the... In the area of nuclear power plants, cancer is 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 present, uh, particularly when you get to thyroid cancer, which is to a large degree a result of um, of, of the radioactive iodine, which is which is emitted and so forth. And then, in terms of a catastrophic accident, uh, again, I, I suggest that listeners uh, Google or go to go to my work. You'll see reference made to a report. And I don't think the federal government will ever make a report like this again. It's titled Calculation of Reactor Accident Consequences, Crack 2. Just Google Crack 2, C-R-A-C, and numeral 2. And what this is is a rundown, a rundown done in 19 – this was issued in 1982 – of the consequences, the impact of a, of a core meltdown – with breach of containment at every nuclear power plant in the United States. For the two Indian Point plants, for example, and I'm just looking at the report, I have it right in front of me, what the government, and this, is done at, this was done at Sandia National Laboratories, which is part of the nuclear technology complex. I mean, these people have no problem with nuclear power, nuclear technology, and even they are admitting that with a uh, the kind of accidents that uh, we've been seeing, you'd have at Indian Point two forty six thousand. This is what they estimate peak early fatalities forty six thousand, and that's just not numbers. We're talking about people's lives. For Indian Point three, which is uh, it's bigger in terms of its megawattage, it's a uh, more poison in it, 50,000, 50,000 peak early fatalities. Uh, the next column here is peak early injuries. They're talking about 141,000 at two, 167,000 at three. Uh, here, the last column is scale costs for billions. In other words, the loss of a, of a big part of the planet uh, really rendered a sacrifice zone unlivable. Uh, what would be the uh, the cost of a uh, again a meltdown at Indian Point two or three for two? And this is in 1980 dollars. 
$274 billion. That's with a B, $274 billion. And for three, the bigger plant, $314 billion. And this is, again, way back decades ago. So these days, multiply those numbers by three. And what they're talking about is in the event of a, of a core meltdown, breach of containment at either of these nuclear power plants, a trillion dollars, a trillion dollars in damage. I mean, again, the scale of destruction. And a minimum, and a minimum get, of at least 150,000 deaths. Yeah, well, uh, and, and I think that, that this is an underestimate. Yeah, there's a minimum. Uh, That's uh, just uh, the floor. <laughs> yeah, well, uh, there's been work done in terms of uh, – in fact, Counterpunch has published my pieces on this. A few years ago, a, a grouping of uh, European scientists uh, led by Dr. Alexei Yablokov, who was like their, the Rachel Carson of Russia. He was the environmental advisor both to Gelson and Gorbachev. Uh, an eminent biologist, written many, many books, started in his career uh, involving marine biology, whales and so forth, but then shifted into, into the nuclear issue. And he and, and other scientists using data uh, from areas that the fallout from the Chernobyl nuclear accident, uh, uh, where it went, I mean, a lot of it dropped in, uh, in Belarus and the Ukraine and in Russia, but some of that fallout uh, occurred elsewhere. And the medical data, uh, 8,000 documents were used for the report, which was put out by the New York Academy of Sciences. They estimate as a result of the, the Chernobyl nuclear plant accident, 985,000, in other words, 1 million deaths having occurred. Again, the, the report was done a few years ago. But up till then, so we're talking at this point, a million plus as a result of uh, of the Chernobyl disaster, the Chernobyl catastrophe. This is this is such a lethal technology. It's such a a, a, a wrong technology. It's such a dead end. And beyond that, it is unnecessary. I mean, there are certain risks in life that you have to take. My friend Jackie took a plane this afternoon to spend uh, this next several months in California. She's a neighbor here on Long Island. She doesn't like the cold weather, but there's a certain risk. It's, 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 it's uh, a certain risk uh, by going on an airplane and going to California. But I know Jackie could drive a car, but uh, there's a risk there too. But when it comes to nuclear technology, there's no need for this trip. In fact, there never was a need for this trip. But back in the 1950s, a, a federal panel led by William Paley, the chairman of CBS, said the U.S. should move towards solar, solar power. Uh, we're now more than 60 years beyond that. And th this is not, even, not anymore even a call or something theoretical. I mean, I am talking to you from a, a, a house in Sag Harbor, New York. Uh, on the, It's an old salt box. It's a 150-year-old salt box. And it faces the south like these New England salt box houses uh, uh, were constructed to, to, to face the south with these uh, very you know, kind of big roofs. 
So we have on our roof, on this uh, very classical kind of ancient, kind of pretty place, uh, uh, solar panels. Uh, not just providing electricity. I mean, it's just amazing to me. I can walk out the front door on a on a cloudy day, uh, and I, I'll look at the the meter from the uh, this is the Long Island Power Authority meter, and the numbers are going backwards. I am getting more, you know, even on a cloudy day, I'm I'm, I'm getting more photovoltaic electricity power that I'm using at the house. Mm-hmm. Uh, also on the roof, a couple of thermal panels. On a cold day, I can go down. I can go down. It's like uh, keeping your car with the windows up, even if it's a coldish day. It heats up. With thermal panels, I can go downstairs in the basement where the water goes to from the roof, and you wouldn't believe the temperature even on a cold day. Solar is here. It's Every year, it's... I mean, now it's 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 so competitive, and that's again I point to why nuclear doesn't make sense at all economically. Uh, here you have solar here every year, cheaper and cheaper every year, more efficient. Uh, the panels on my roof, I put them up a few years ago, 23% efficiency. Uh, just last year, a company started developing solar panels, 36%. Efficiency. I mean, this this is more than uh, the photovoltaic panels that are used in space. The solar panels have in terms of efficiency. Uh, cheaper, more efficient every year. Then you have wind, which is it's uh, it's it's all over this 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 planet. Uh, offshore wind, in particular, and onshore wind, is just booming. Uh, here, right off Long Island, uh, a little bit to the east of, uh, of the island, it's between oh Block Island and uh, Block Island and Rhode Island and Eastern Long Island, the first the first wind farm, offshore wind farm in the United States, just started operating in December of 2016. So here you have these wind turbines. Uh, they were erected by deep water wind. Uh, producing prodigious. I mean, I'm, I'm a sailor. I, I, I sail around Long Island. That wind is, is is wonderful. It's strong. It's there, and here you can you can generate you can generate wind. And furthermore, when you do things with solar or wind, when you when you do things with green energy, I mean, once those panels are up on the roof. Once those wind turbines are there to be whipped around by the by, by the breezes, by the wind, uh, you know, there's no need for fuel anymore. I mean, the sun doesn't send a bill. Uh, you don't get a bill for the from from, from the wind. Uh, once the infrastructure is in place, the energy is free, and we are really at a point. There's been all kinds of breakthroughs and. Uh, it's here. We're here. We're we're in a situation where there's a a renewable energy bonanza at hand, and the problem is you have these people committed to the uh, old dirty energy technologies from which they profit. Uh, 
the the coal and the oil and now uh, with the gas with the fracking uh you know and nuclear who would uh steer the ship of state in the direction of uh profitability for them but again there's no need for for for, for we to uh, to to be subjective subject to this colossal danger of nuclear technology or uses these this other stuff which impacts in terms of climate change and global warming uh, i mean you can see it uh, at this at this point every year uh the, the winter's getting warmer and warmer and the crazy weather we could we could have energy that we can live with it's here it's here today and i think with the same kind of energy which led to the the closure in a couple of years, or three to four years, nothing happens between then and now, of Indian Point, the same kind of combination of grassroots grassroots power and uh, sensible, not bought off uh, governmental power, and a little bit of, 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 of wise media, a little bit of, 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 I mean, I've been a journalist, been a journalist all my life, uh, and I just feel it's so important People have to be informed by. I mean, it's critical. Uh, it's, it's, it's 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 central to democracy to have folks that are aware and with. Well, I I love writing for Counterpunch. I mean, you started the program off saying, well, you don't want to sound like you're pushing it, but Counterpunch to me is a uh, an absolute model of of informed, intelligent, uh, solid, and brave, brave journalism that enables people, allows people to know, to learn. Uh, Let let me just add to that. I I got into journalism, corny story, terribly corny. I, I went to Antioch College in Ohio, and I had an internship at a newspaper in Cleveland, and above the entrance was the motto of it was the Cleveland Press, and, and etched in the stone was, give the people the light, and they'll find their own way. And, and there was also a lighthouse that was carved into the stone. And here I was, a, a kid, this is 1960, I was a kid from Brooklyn, and I saw what we would now call investigative reporters uh, expose various horror stories and, and inequities and dangers uh, and 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 I, there, I was a copy boy, just a copy boy, seeing that the very publication, the very dissemination of this information, solved the problem about half the time, about fifty percent of the time, it seemed. The period I was at the Cleveland Press, every expose didn't didn't solve the problem, but half of them did. And uh, that caused me to commit myself and my, uh, uh, to direct my life to going into, I went back to New York where I'm from, went back to Brooklyn and committed myself to uh, becoming an investigative reporter. And you give the people the life, the light, uh, they'll find their own way. They'll also, in terms of nuclear power, uh, keep their own lives. Uh, and, uh, the only caveat I'd like to note is 
that you have to have a semblance of democracy uh, for this process to happen, to have a free press informing the people. And that's one of the things that I'm very worried about uh, as a lifelong journalist, as a journalism professor, as, a, uh, as someone who's so committed to our free press system, to this uh, Trump and what he represents. Oh, well... <laughs> I'm going to uh, I'm, I'm going to thank you for uh, ending that on such a positive note uh, at the end there. But uh, what can we do? It's not it's it's uh, it's an inescapable reality, and we don't want to be our uh, you know ostriches with our head in the sand. But um, let's take a break. We're we're well overdue for that, so let's do that. And then uh, when we come back, we have a lot more to discuss, including a issue that you briefly touched on there in your comments that I want to explore a little bit more in depth. I'm chatting here with Carl Grossman. He's an investigative reporter, professor at the State University of New York at Old Westbury. Uh, follow him at his website, carlgrossman.com. That's Carl with a K, grossman.com. Stick with us. We will be right back. No, no. We're back. 
back here on Counterpunch Radio. I'm chatting with Carl Grossman. So much to discuss. Uh, obviously, the big news, uh, the the announcement of the future closure of the Indian Point uh, nuclear power complex here in the Hudson Valley in New York, just about a uh, 30-minute drive north out of uh, New York City. Obviously, this has been a major issue in the anti-nuclear movement. Indian Point is widely recognized as probably the most dangerous or at least one of the most dangerous nuclear plants anywhere in the world uh, and uh, obvious and and the cliche of ticking time bomb is certainly apt but you know you mentioned something in your comments uh, before we went to break Carl that um, you only briefly touched on and I think it's so critically important and that is this this little thing called Fukushima and the reason I bring up Fukushima, well, there's a couple. Number one, of course, because Fukushima is the Chernobyl for this generation. It is the the you know the the, the worst case scenario kind of situation, uh, and it's still playing out. So I want to talk a little bit about. Whether, first of all, whether you think Fukushima and the reality of Fukushima has played any role in reigniting a movement to shut down the nuclear plants in this country. And then the second question, and this relates back to what you were getting at before we went to break, Fukushima, in my view, is also a case study in propaganda, a case study in conspiracy and in covering up the truth, and a case study in the corporate control of our media, because this is probably one of the biggest stories, if not the biggest story of the last decade, and it is almost never discussed in any media in the U.S. or anywhere in the West. Only a couple of news outlets in Japan can really be counted on to provide us with accurate information about Fukushima. So let's 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 talk a little bit about Fukushima. Do you think Fukushima is playing a role in in reigniting activism on this issue and or in moving on the Indian Point question and then tackle, if you would, Fukushima as a case study in media censorship? Yeah, well, I, I, it's had, I think, enormous impact. Uh, I mean, uh, at this point, globally, with over 400 nuclear power plants worldwide, we're seeing a catastrophe basically every decade. Uh, and uh, this was the uh, uh, the catastrophe of, uh, of now well, over five years ago. And it did affect people, but the cover-up, it did affect people. They, I mean, to see those, those, uh, those videos of nuclear plants exploding, uh, well, I, oh, through the years I've, I've debated people from uh, the nuclear establishment uh, for a while. Actually, I was paired with former New Hampshire Governor John Sununu, uh, at college debates and so forth. And the insistence was nuclear plants can't explode. Well, what was that happening at Fukushima when those nuclear plants exploded? Uh, the, I mean, and, and we're talking about an ongoing catastrophe, an ongoing disaster in terms of uh, contamination uh, of Japan, uh, the uh, impact on the the Pacific, and uh, when you get get involved issues of radioactivity, you have uh, 
in, an, in a marine environment like the Pacific, you have biomagnification. Uh, a little bit of the radioactivity gets on uh, some um, uh, oh, uh, stuff that uh, the fish would eat, and then a bigger fish eats the smaller fish. Uh, that uh, that uh, a bigger fish eats that, and so forth. And you're eating some sushi in San Francisco, and uh, wow, you're 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 being impacted. Carl, can I can I just uh, and, jump and, in? But, can but, I, I just want to jump in very quickly for listeners. In 2011, there were there was a there was a report. I don't remember what uh, publication. I think it was what what, what is it? The uh, the the Shimbun out of Japan. They were reporting that there were fish found on the shores in Alaska that were you know uh, with these elevated radiation levels. In other words, basically Fukushima fish washing up on the west coast of the United States. This was roundly panned by people saying this is conspiracy mongering, conspiracy theory, totally not uh, not backed up by the facts, absolutely no evidence other than anecdotal information. Fast forward to 2015, everything confirmed by all of the researchers working on this issue. So again, you know, this is one of those cases where the environmentalists, the anti-nuclear movement were way ahead of this uh, of the curve and way ahead of the mainstream science and certainly way ahead of the media. In my view, and I could speak more about impacts, but my concern is I'm a journalist. I believe in communication. I believe in, I'm committed to people being aware. And in my view, the cover-up on Fukushima is one of the biggest, the biggest, that's why I titled my first book, Cover-Up, What You're Not Supposed to Know About nuclear power, it has to be one of the biggest cover-ups in the history of, 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 of humanity. Has to I be. mean, this, this, ter- this terrible disaster happened involving not one, like in Chernobyl, but a number of nuclear plants. Uh, Chernobyl, uh, after a period of time, uh, it was finally, I can't say, gotten under control, but with Fukushima, it's never... It's never, ever come under control. And, and the cover-up is just, uh, it's, I, I mentioned before the Atomic Energy Commission, and it was created to both regulate and uh, at the same time promote a conflict of interest, uh, nuclear technology. Well, in, back in the 1950s, uh, a certain president, Dwight Eisenhower, made a certain speech at the United Nations advocating atomists for peace, and that led to the creation, a mirror image on an international level of the AEC, the International Atomic Energy Agency, the IAEA, uh, headquartered in Vienna. The AEC, as I, I mentioned before, was, was abolished, was eliminated because it was so outrageously in conflict of interest. But here, the international and big, big quotes watchdog or monitor and promoter of, of, of nuclear technology globally is the IAEA. Uh, check out what the IAEA says about the, the impacts of, uh, of Fukushima. Uh, no one has died. They don't expect maybe a, 
uh, a few. Uh, it's beyond minimizing. Uh, then there's an organization called the World Health Organization, uh, WHO. I mean, not to sound too conspiratorial, but I mean, this is the fact. Uh, there's a pact between, you can Google it or look at my work. There's a pact, an agreement, a formal agreement, which is online, between the IAEA and WHO, uh, which um, uh, states that WHO is to do, is to release, is to issue no work, no studies, no research on issues involving radioactivity without uh, really clearing it with the IAEA. So here you have this WHO, this, this captured agency, this IAEA, like the old AEC, a, uh, an incredible promoter of, of nuclear uh, technology of all sorts. Indeed, if, if, if you Google IEA and look, look for the kind of projects that they're up to, it's like going back to the 40s or 50s. They're looking to do anything with nuclear technology to perpetuate their, uh, their jobs, their positions, uh, the uh, the income of some of their uh, uh, corporate partners and so forth. So here, the the global police, so to speak, when it comes to nuclear technology, have dismally, criminally failed when it's come to nuclear technology. Uh, come to Fukushima. In terms of Japan, uh, it's it, 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 it's a horror show, an absolute horror show. Uh, 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 the uh, the fellow who was the prime minister of um, uh, of Japan when the uh, Fukushima accident occurred, Nagato Khan, uh, I went to hear him in New York a few years ago, uh, and he had been a promoter of nuclear power. He, uh, but uh, he said after Fukushima, I mean, he he was talking about the plans to evacuate Tokyo, and uh, just, just I mean, he he got to understand. Mr. Khan, the lethal nature of this technology uh, and the crazy aspect of having these nuclear plants on this string of volcanic islands, Japan. I mean, it's just, just, it, it, he became 180 degree turn against nuclear power. Nevertheless, uh, his, now you have a, a the, the, <laughs> the, the Japanese leader Shinzo Abe is 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 a big promoter, a huge promoter of uh, of nuclear power. And also, I mentioned earlier how General Electric and Westinghouse got into the nuclear business, the nuclear technology business during the Manhattan Project. I mean, virtually unreported through the years. Now, I have reported this regularly on Counterpunch. Is that uh, Two years before Fukushima began, in 2009, a certain company uh, called Toshiba uh, acquired uh, uh, the nuclear operations of Westinghouse. And now it's Toshiba Westinghouse. And a few months later, the same year, a certain Japanese corporation called a Hitachi uh, went into partnership in terms of nuclear technology with General Electric. So historically, um, GE and Westinghouse, uh, they're the Coke and Pepsi 
of, of, of nuclear technology, nuclear power. Eighty percent historically of nuclear power plants are of GNE and or Westinghouse design or manufacture. Now you have those two uh, cor- corporations really has Japanese brands. Uh, unbelievable. Uh, and you have within, uh, and I've, I've spoken to people from Japan on this, uh, within the Japanese uh, government, they, they don't call it a nuclear establishment, they go right to the chase. They call it an atomic mafia. Uh, these folks within government with this, with this strong personal interest in nuclear technology. And then you then you got got to get to the media, the press. I begin to if I can just read this paragraph. This is how I begin my book cover up what you are not supposed to know about nuclear power. I have it in front of me. You have not been informed about nuclear power. This is how I begin it. You have not been told and that has been done on purpose. Keeping the public in the dark was deemed necessary by the promoters of nuclear power, if it was to succeed. Those in government, science, and private industry who have been pushing nuclear power realize that if people were given the facts, if they knew the consequences of nuclear power, they would not stand for it. Now, that 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 that, that principle of we're going we're gonna to try to bamboozle the public we're going to try to, uh, I mean, Goebbels would, the Nazi propaganda minister would be smiling in his grave uh, if he knew the history of, uh, of the nuclear establishment, the atomic mafia, and so forth, whether it be in the United States or in the United Kingdom uh, or in France or in Japan. All over the world, these, these, uh, these atomic brotherhoods, they've been called as well, uh, these groups have focused very, very heavily on, uh, on on propaganda and manipulating the public so the public uh, uh, just doesn't know. Uh, and uh, a model for that in the most recent years is uh, the Fukushima disaster, both on the level of Japan and on the level of um, uh, of the IAEA uh, on an international level, and as well in terms of the United States on a national level. I mean, there was a guy named Gregory Jasko, and he was chairman of the Nuclear Regulatory Commission. Well, what happened in 1974 is that Congress said can't have this conflict of interest anymore, so they created the NRC, the Nuclear Regulatory Commission, to replace the Atomic Energy Commission, and it would regulate, and then you'd have another agency finally they created the Department of Energy to do this, to promote nuclear power. But the fact is that the NRC has really been no different than the AEC. I mean, neither the NRC or the AEC ever denied a construction or operating license for any nuclear power plant anywhere, anytime in U.S. history. I mean, it's it's the it's NRC, it's the Nuclear Rubber Stamp Commission. Nevertheless, the NRC had a chairman, Gregory Jasko, who wasn't some anti-nuke person. He had a PhD in atomic physics and so forth. And he realized the implications and the consequences of um, Fukushima. Uh, as a result, uh, in the wake of Fukushima and his insistence 
Gregory Jasko's insistence that um, uh, in every decision the NRC utilized, lessons learned was the term that was used. Uh, what occurred was the industry and the Atomic Brotherhood within uh, the, the nuclear promoters within government got together, and Jasko was uh, pushed out of the NRC. He lost his position, not only as chairman, but member of the NRC uh, because of because of Fukushima and this man trying to to tell the truth and trying to uh, to have this country get real. So no, in in in, in terms of uh, oh, in terms of Fukushima, uh, it, it, it's and again. Google these words and put counterpunch in my name, and you'll see me use them so many times. This great cover-up, this historical cover-up, has occurred, and it continues to occur because the disaster involving all those nuclear plants is is ongoing. It's continuing. And one of the things that we've read about recently that is so terrifying is this: um, the reports about the, the the what what seems like the complete collapse of the. Uh, of, of the wall that was holding back all of this allegedly yes. isolated, uh, contaminated, you know, the uh, material that that's now yeah. leaking directly into the Pacific Ocean. So this is now really kind of bringing us back to the first days after Fukushima, where it was completely uncontrolled, no containment, and a uh, an attempt to totally minimize the uh, long term, well, actually short term, medium term and long-term impacts to the Pacific Ocean in general, the entire ecosystem of the Pacific Ocean. And this is something that, you know, if you look at that in tandem with all of the other things that are happening from ocean acidification and the bleaching of the Great Barrier Reef and the destruction of so many different aspects of the Pacific Ocean, I mean, really, one could say that Fukushima is only one part of even a much larger puzzle. Big effort has been going on. Continues. Big effort has been going on to, to normalize the impacts of radioactivity. Uh, to uh, in Japan to get people to move back to the area of Fukushima to uh, uh, to encourage uh, uh, produce uh, being purchased from the the Fukushima uh, area. I mean, these people. Uh, I mentioned Google before in searches, and I've written about this on Counterpunch as well. But listeners should, after after the program, look up the words radiation hormesis, radiation hormesis, H-O-R-M-E-S-I-S, hormesis, and what these what these nuclear Pinocchios have put together is this theory hormesis, this radiation hormesis. This goes even beyond normalization. That radiation is good for you. Yes, actually, radiation <laughs> yes. exercises your immune system. Yes, yes, I so read it's good. That, yeah. that it's good for you. I mean, uh, oh, these these people, these uh, these. Uh, I mean, I think the principles of Nuremberg <coughs> need to be applied to this uh, to this. Uh, what we've been through and what we continue to be through 
by these uh, these evil people. These 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 these. Uh, you know, I I also start cover up. I, I use a biblical quote talking about uh, uh, choosing between uh, darkness and light, life and death, and choose life so you and your children may live. I mean, it, this is what the, these are forces of darkness, uh, and 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 that may sound overdramatic, but go to a, U, a U.S. Nuclear Regulatory Commission hearing, and you see these, you know, these, you know, evil, you know, evil uh, judges. They call them judges. They're not judges, but as part of that original scheme that I talked about, when uh, the feds wanted to. Uh, uh, push nuclear down our throats. So they created not only the AEC, but they have judges, AEC judges, who would decide on licensing. They don't know judges. It would be somebody from one of the national nuclear laboratories. And I mean, uh, and so you, you, you can, you can, it's beyond Broadway. It's beyond uh a, a drama that somebody would 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 write uh, to see evil in action on on these various levels, but in I, 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 again, all I, I you got to see it. You got to see these these NRC characters in operation. You have to uh, look at here. You can go online. You don't have to go to Vienna. The, the, the propaganda, the, uh, uh, the, the, the the BS on the websites of, uh, on the website of the International Atomic Energy Agency. Uh, you you got to just uh, read some of the stuff that this Abe has been going around the world trying to sell <laughs> nuclear power plants because again, GE and Westinghouse now are, are Japanese brands, and and. I mean, here this country has been devastated, Japan devastated by this terrible nuclear accident. And in the wake of it, has, in many years, had no, I mean, they had to shut down all the nuclear power plants for, for, for extensive periods of time. And now just a few have come back, and Japan is doing fine. I mean, what, what, what was the need for it? What was the need for it at all? But in any case, the, the, this country, which has suffered so much and will suffer and suffer and suffer uh, more than, you know, I mean, uh, uh, it was ground zero from uh, from these nuclear plants. Here, its leader is out trying to sell, their de- sell these uh, these death machines well, uh, you know, uh, Carl, to other nations. That's one of the things that is always striking about uh, talking about Fukushima is because it's 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 one of those issues that the full scope of the problem is not even going to be known for probably a generation. You know, in a, in, in other words, we can sit here and 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 talk about you know just how devastating Fukushima is or was, and you know the impact on the Pacific Ocean or whatever, but. 30 years from now, 40 years from now, maybe, or actually probably a lot less than that, when tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of Japanese are dying from an epidemic of cancer-related deaths that could be attributed to radiation from Fukushima, I think it'll only be then 
will people really begin to appreciate the scope of what happened there? Yeah, and, and, and two points here. <laughs> when originally standards were created for radiation exposure, what was not taken into account was when you have lower levels or moderate levels, the latency or incubation period, uh, that those kinds of, uh, of levels of radioactivity don't uh, cause somebody to, to drop in the gutter dead in a matter of days. Uh, you're not going to have the, the Hiroshima or the Nagasaki uh, model in action. What you're going to have with lower or moderate levels is this you, you absorb this amount of radioactivity, this amount of radiation. It, it, it irradiates cells, and those cells slowly reproduce, and slowly reproduce, and then 10 years later or 15 years later or 30 or 40 years later, suddenly you you feel a, a bump, and it's a tumor, and it's cancerous. You, uh, so way, way back, this was not understood. Uh, I mean, I'm giving benefit of the doubt to... to, to uh, uh, those standard makers. But the other issue, and this is really, I, I, I think, uh, get back to propaganda, is that radioactivity doesn't leave a calling card. And how to, how, to, how to make the connection, how to prove that there was this connection. And what the, the nuclear establishment has been working on and working on for so many years is to uh, not just to limit but to eliminate a connection to uh to try to say that um uh it's 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 not from chernobyl uh, uh it, it it was not from three mile island uh it's not from fukushima and prove elsewhere elsewise i mean i i i i i wrote a, a book on chemical toxins and uh i i did a good chunk of a chapter on Agent Orange, and the stance that our government took for decades with with the soldiers who were the former soldiers who were suffering from exposure to Agent Orange. You prove it. You prove it. And finally, you know, finally, uh, there was the admission. In terms of, well, for example, the National Nuclear Laboratories. I mean, they began with Los Alamos and Oak Ridge and. What's well, now Argonne, and then and then Sandia, and here on uh, in New York on Long Island, there's one called Brookhaven National Laboratory, and so forth. Well, at these uh, the Hanford facility up, uh, cancer is, is is has been rampant, has been widespread. I mean, these are cancer clusters in and of them. I mean, there, there, there are nuclear systems, reactors, and well, with Hanford. Uh, bunch of reactors were actually built way back and uh, during the Manhattan Project as, as, as plutonium production reactors. They've been doing fission up in Hanford, and then they have enormous amounts of waste. In any case, widespread cancer at these national nuclear laboratories, but only in recent years did the federal government set up uh, funds, multi-million dollar funds for former employees at all these national nuclear laboratories to compensate for, for medical impacts. I mean, 
in some ways, in small ways, uh, you know, the, uh, the truth has become evident, but there is such, uh, and it, 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 it's been going on for decades and decades, there is such an effort to, uh, to cover up, as, as I say, I, I called my first book on this, a nuclear technology cover-up, because uh, that was the operative uh, term. Mm -hmm. uh, and just, if, if I could also add, um, uh, after Fukushima, I um, wrote a new introduction to cover up what you're not supposed to know about nuclear power. And listeners of the program, if you'd like to go to my website, Carl Grossman, with a K, Carl Grossman, one word, dot com, uh, because of the generosity of the publisher, you can download Cover Up, the newest edition, for free. Uh, just click on where it's books and uh, and download it, and, and there it is. Uh, uh, the publishers felt it was more important to get the information out than anything. Uh, and I would, and, I would urge, uh, I would urge listeners to do precisely that. Uh, it's a very important, it's a very important book, not only because of the, uh, you know, the, the, the story that it tells the information that you get, but I mean, all of the references, all of the, you know, further reading, all of the, uh, you know, links and studies and all that other stuff. I mean, these are the kinds of ammunition that we need in, in being able to not only win the arguments around the dinner table, or whatever, but to, to to really take the fight to these bastards as we as we uh, you know confront them at every turn. Yeah, and what I tried to do with cover up, realizing what I was up against, was use the actual documents as facsimiles and reprint the documents in the book so the book could serve as a, as a handbook. For example. Um, there was a report done at that Brookhaven National Laboratory, which was set up in 1947 to do atomic research, but mainly to develop civilian or commercial uses of nuclear technology set up by the Atomic Energy Commission. And they did one of the early uh, reports on the, the consequences this is before crack two uh, of a, uh, a nuclear power disaster. Uh, and their report is called the Wash 740 Update. It's done in the late 60s. Uh, and there's a line, and uh, in fact, it's more than a line, over and over again in Wash 740 Update is this passage which says, and I'm reading right here, right from cover-up, and I'm reading the actual document, the actual Atomic Energy Commission document you'll see in the book, that with a nuclear plant accident, Quote, the possible size of the area of such a disaster might be equal to that of the state of Pennsylvania, to the state of Pennsylvania. And that's a decade before the Three Mile Island accident in 79 almost uh, uh, enveloped an area the size of, size of the state of Pennsylvania. Uh, also, in the in, in the in cover up, for example, so I mean, knowledge I think is so important on this issue. Uh, I, I get into how they played around. 1957 was the pivotal year. That shipping port nuclear plant, which was uh, uh, Brickover supervised its construction, it opened in 57. 
the initial report done with Brookhaven Lab on the consequences of a of uh, of a uh, of a disaster was put out. That's called Wash 740. I also reprint pages from Wash 740 in cover up. Why they did a new report then was a Wash 740 update because it turned out the kind of nuclear plants that were going to be built turned out to be much, much bigger than originally thought. So they had to update their calculations. And also in 1957, the Price-Anderson Act was passed. And I don't know how many people now, you know, we're many, many decades beyond, know that in 1957 what occurred was that the insurance industry said, hey, we're not, we're not going to provide insurance for these machines. They, they, uh, but the, the nuclear establishment uh, between the industry and those in government uh, put together the Price-Anderson Act, which limited liability in the event of a nuclear plant disaster. This is in 1957, initially, to $560 million dollars with the government paying the first $500 million. So in other words, if you had a disaster, and oh, uh, actually the, the original War 740 report talked even with smaller plants of billions in, in damage, $7 billion in damage. Uh, but all that, and War 740 update up the numbers and crack two up the number even. But in any case, initially, what people would be limited to in the event of a nuclear disaster, if Indian Point went or San Onofre went or Diablo Canyon went or wherever, would be $560 million. And then just to, to extend that point, what I did in cover-up was to reprint my all-state policy. Listeners, too, after the program, go to your homeowner's insurance. In everybody's homeowner's insurance in America, there's what's called the nuclear clause, which says that um, there's a limit, no matter if it's all state, you may be in good hands in regard to your car, but forget about a nuclear accident down the road, uh, that this, this, this policy does not cover loss or damage caused by, and they, they have various words for it, but essentially a nuclear accident. Now that that limit is now higher. It's I think it's 11 billion. This is after many decades. But now you're talking about like I was talking about what the uh, the Indian Point plants and uh, the projections of property damage really being at a trillion dollar a plant. So now the limit of liability would be over 11 billion dollars. I think it's 11.5 billion dollars. I mean, do people know this? People must know this. And uh, uh, speaking as a, again, as a lifelong journalist who believe, give people the light and they'll find their own way. To me, it's an absolute shame that if 60 Minutes devoted 60 Minutes to the conversation that we've been having, if the show 60 Minutes devoted 60 Minutes to some of the, the, the many articles on counterpunch on this issue. Uh, in, in other words, if the American public was informed by well, so-called mainstream media, if, if, if the New York Times, if the Washington Post, uh, 
at the New Yorker magazine really wanted to fully present these issues. And there's so many more. I mean, we were just talking when we started the program of the most recent piece I did on Counterpunch, which involves an engineer in the nuclear the nuclear industry for 30 years who just, I mean, just last week I get a telephone call. Uh, this is in the wake of the, uh, the Indian point, uh, agreement saying, well, uh, it's good, but, uh, but every nuclear plant is a ticking time bomb. And then he went on, he went on to tell me, and uh, again, readers could uh, really go to counterpunch, uh, and, 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 uh, Look at the piece, uh, uh, the NRC inspection force, like the Nuclear Regulatory Commission likes to say, uh, we have two inspectors, resident inspectors at every nuclear power plant. Well, what this inspector told me, and no one ever told me this before, this this was new news, is that they can't make surprise inspections. He says what they have to do is to inform upper management that they'd like to inspect a part of the plant, and uh, then they're to be escorted. Uh, here I'm quoting from, from, from the engineer. The only inspections can be made are those that come after the NRC inspectors get permission from upper management. Uh, the inspector's hands are tied. Uh, I, I, in, in this piece, too, I get into, and again, I don't know how many listeners are familiar with this, Originally, and this longtime engineer, he worked for General Electric, in fact, uh, went into great detail with me about how originally the nuclear plants, nuclear plants were only licensed to run 40 years uh, because, and they calculated very carefully, and he goes on and on how they did the calculations of how long they could uh, safely run, uh, or relatively safely run in terms of uh, dealing with the embrittlement of uh, the various components and so forth. So 40 years was the limit. That was it. That's what all the licenses that the Atomic Energy Commission and the Nuclear Regulatory Commission issued uh, for years and years were for, for 40 years. Uh, then in recent years, uh, with, uh, with Three Mile Island and with Chernobyl and now with Fukushima, so the industry is not exactly on a roll, uh, they want to keep these, these, these machines going. What the Nuclear Regulatory Commission has done is to issue over and over again licenses to uh, uh, let these plants go for 60 years. I mean, like right now, as we speak, there's 99 operating nuclear power plants in the U.S. Over 85 have been given now licenses to go for 60 years. And here I'm quoting the engineer that a nuclear plant can run for 60 or, and it goes on 80 years because uh, two big operators of uh, nuclear plants, uh, Dominion uh, and Exelon, are seeking 80-year. Uh, they want to have their plants run for 80 years. Because the engineer goes on that a nuclear plant can run for 60 years or 80 years is wishful thinking. The industry has thrown out the window all the data developed of the lifetime of nuclear plant. It would ignore the standards to benefit their wallets for greed with total disregard for the the country's safety. 
and uh, then the piece on counterpunch also goes on the carbon-free myth that the the nuclear promoters say, well, uh, nuclear plants don't uh, emit greenhouse gases. Yeah, but what they won't say is that the nuclear cycle or the nuclear chain from mining to milling to fuel enrichment to fabrication to so forth and so on, all of them, and I'm here I'm quoting the engineer, all of this is carbon intensive. Uh, nuclear power is not carbon free. It's not an antidote to, to, to global warming, to climate change. What is solar and wind and safe, clean, green, renewable energy? But this kind of information, uh, it's to me, well, it's it's tragic. It isn't potentially tragic, considering what's gone down already. And will all these nuclear plants are ticking time bombs, like the the engineer said? Uh, what will come down? Tragic that uh, people have not been given this light because if people had this information, whether it be in the United States or in France or in the United Kingdom uh, or in Japan or uh, on and on, they would say, I mean, maybe people don't read as many books as they used to, but the survival instinct is still operable. One would hope so. And again, one would hope so. Oh, I'd hope so too. And, and, and again, there's no need for this trip. There's no reason for this. Well, Carl, uh, there Carl is. I just want to ask you uh, if I could, and I'm sorry, I don't mean to cut you off, but we're well over the time already. <laughs> but, uh, I, I, I want to ask one final question, and really this is a, a comment and also a question. For me personally, I am, you know, I'm I'm 33 years old. I have a uh an infant at home. I'm just starting a family. I'm just kind of uh, you know, moved from my I guess you could say political development period or my youth or whatever and into my adulthood, I guess as it were. And why am I saying that? Because I'm a little bit I'm a little bit too young to have been involved in the heyday of the anti-nuclear movement um certainly the mid 70s and into the 80s when this was really a vibrant movement um that much of that has been lost in recent decades and I I think that um for people who are millennials, people who are of my generation, people who are also embarking upon having families and buying homes and making those kind of life decisions that 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 one makes uh, at that you know at that time of your life. I don't see how this issue of nuclear, uh, you know, this nuclear danger, how that doesn't figure centrally in all of those decision-making processes. It's one thing if you were going through this in 1955 or in 1965 or even in 1975, but today, with like you were saying, with all of the information that's available, what we know about the connections between cancer rates and 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 nuclear uh, rates 
radiation exposure, what we know about Fukushima and Chernobyl and, and Three Mile Island and all of these other incidents, to me, it's not only is it a no-brainer, I would say it's a responsibility of uh, younger people, people of my generation, to really take up this fight because the reality is that that first wave of anti-nuclear activists, they may very well make it to the end of their lives without ever having seen a major nuclear disaster in the United States. But I would be willing to bet that people who are in their 30s don't have that luxury. Yeah, particularly with 60- and 80-year-old nuclear power plants. <laughs> Again, I'm speaking to you from Long Island. Well, and Carl, I'm sorry, just the reason I'm saying that, the reason I'm saying that is because I want you to talk a little bit about how you view the responsibility of activists and particularly younger activists today on this issue. Well, it's, 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 it's talking about the old days, uh, there was a motto, uh, active today or radioactive tomorrow. Yes, exactly. People must yes. get radioactive and <laughs> sorry, people <laughs> must get active or they're yeah. going to be radioactive. Exactly. And, 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 and here, here, here where I live on Long Island, people wait. Oh, Ibsen, he, he wrote, truth is a lion in the street. It's an Ibsen, Henrik Ibsen quote. And even though the New York Times and the Long Island newspaper Newsday incessantly pushed, uh, like I wrote another book called Power Crazy, about the Long Island nuclear story, nuclear power in Long Island, ultimately uh, because of grassroots action and activism and some good people in government and some 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 media, I'm pr- very proud of the part I've played. Uh, in the end, there were not seven to eleven nuclear plants built on Long Island. Shoreham was stopped. It was closed. It was decommissioned as a nuclear facility. It's sitting there, an empty hulk of concrete, thank heavens. None of the other nuclear power plants ever were built. At uh, Brookhaven Lab, they had two reactors that were leaking tritium into the groundwater. And Long Island is it's one of these places uh, dependent on its underground water supply as its sole source of potable water. Uh, these two reactors at this National Nuclear Laboratory were closed. And because of people action, because of, of local and state government action, uh, because of uh, the media that, that did do the job, Long Island, with its many people, millions of people, live here is nuclear free nuclear free and my uh, my vision and i think it can be i think it can be is that that type of uh combination uh in, in, a, in a big tent approach like during the Shoreham fight there were people with different strategies the shale alliance for example felt that protest is what was necessary civil disobedience uh the Shoreham Opponents Coalition. Now we got to get those pro-nuclear politicians uh, in the pocket of the utility out of office. So that was important. Doing election, but this, no matter what their the recipe of this organization or that organization, 
in a big tent. They all got together, and the end all is that Long Island is is there's no nuclear power here whatsoever. It's nuclear free, and that's what the United States needs to be nuclear free. And in my view, just to extend it, uh, the United Nations has allocated certain portions of the planet uh, as nuclear free or, or designated as nuclear free zones. I'm talking about nuclear weapons, Antarctica, a good portion of the Pacific, uh, portions of Latin America, Africa, and so forth. I think what in the end has to be done, because we've not spoken about that in this interview, but it, this is so important too. The whole planet has to be designated and become nuclear free. Because what we've not talked about, which is so important, is that any country that has a nuclear reactor, that has a nuclear facility, a nuclear plant, then has the trained personnel and the material, the plutonium that's produced, uh, to make nuclear weapons. I mean, uh, in 1970s, under Atomists for Peace, uh, Canadians, in fact, provided India with a reactor, and we, uh, our Atomic Energy Commission, then trained those reactor operators, and lo and behold, India had the bomb in 1974, and then soon Pakistan in competition with Mm-hmm. With India had a bomb and so forth. So, if 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 we're to survive and our children are to survive and their children are to survive and we're going to get through the 21st century uh, without without uh, I mean I hate to hate to sound Cassandra-like it uh, and speak about these possibilities of nuclear conflict, nuclear war. And the tie-in, and it's an intimate tie-in with nuclear technology, nuclear power plants, uh, the production of nuclear weapons, the connection between the two, and so forth. We have to do what, what people did after World War One. After World War One, there was an understanding that chemical warfare was horrendous and had to be outlawed. And and, and there were several treaties that were that were enacted internationally banning chemical weaponry. That's not been a perfect system. There has been the use, some use of chemical weapons, but, but basically that terrible genie was put back in the bottle. And the same has to be done with nuclear poisons, nuclear technology. Well, there's no doubt. Put it back in the bottle and it can be done. There's no doubt about that. We'll have to leave it there. Um, I, I want to thank you so much for coming on the show. Carl Grossman, investigative reporter, professor at the State University of New York at Old Westbury. You should get uh, access to uh, all of his work through his website, carlgrossman.com, K-A-R-L-G-R-O-S-S-M-A-N.com. You can, of course, also follow Carl's work regularly on Counterpunch, where he is a regular contributor. Carl, thanks so much for coming on the show and talking with me. It's been a pleasure. And listeners, thank you as always. Chat with you again next week. <laughs>